A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Tuesday morning, the 5th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Russia stands accused of war crimes in Ukraine, acting brutally against a civilian population, massacring people in towns like Busha. I have seen mass graves with 300 bodies most of them with their hands tied behind their backs. Men, but also women and children. Some of them killed altogether, some of them killed separately. People like, and dead bodies lying on the sides of the road. Uh, the bodies that they were tried to burn, especially women's, to cover for the rapes and all the other sexual assaults that happening there. So what we have seen was a total genocide. And I'm using this word intentionally because, because these people, they were not armed. They were not resistance. They were not trying to oppose their occupants. They were just living there at the outskirts of Kiev. You know, peaceful place where you plan to move when you're turning 35 and want to settle down. Now they are all gone. Ukrainian MP Kira Rodak vividly describing how so many innocent civilians are so suddenly gone, many of them now in mass graves. This is a war crime and it will be recognized by the world as genocide. You are here and you see what has happened. We know thousands of people were killed and tortured with severed limbs, raped women, killed children. I think this is genocide. The Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky speaking in Busha yesterday. Now let's talk to the Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne. Minister, good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Do you agree with uh, the President's assessment there? Is Russia guilty of war crimes? Is this genocide? There's no question. Um, there's no question this is genocide, that war crimes have been committed. We saw people, including President Biden, the last week or two describe what was going on as war crimes and Putin as a war criminal. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that now. Uh, and that's why, you know, we in Ireland have been extremely supportive of the International Criminal Court. We've we've joined 40 countries in actually referring it there. And we've actually put up 150,000 as well in additional funding to try to help with this investigation because people have been brought before the International Criminal Court before and have been made accountable. I think one of the most important things we can do uh, in our role in Security Council and European Union is to have people accountable for crimes. That's not going to happen today or tomorrow. Mm. Um, But if we do invest in the International Criminal Court, it can happen. 
And do these crimes need independent verification? Because the Russians are are claiming that it's all staged, it didn't happen, and it's to demonise Russia. Look, we we prefer to see the International Criminal Court. I mean, if people have committed war crimes, then they have to be convicted before that court. Um, So it's not a case of me making a statement and, and saying what my view is. This has to go before this international court at some point in the future. And as I said, that's not going to happen today or tomorrow. Um, but we've provided funding at least so the prosecutor can investigate these crimes, uh, gather up all the evidence, of which there's a, there's a lot. And we can all be amateur investigators by looking at Twitter and looking at TV and all that. But there are people there who are professionally experienced in doing this and have done it in previous situations. And what we can do in Ireland is give them the funding, the resources to be able to do their job. Mm. And that's uh, to bring about convictions against those responsible for those crimes. But if we believe that those crimes have been committed, uh, we can act now, can't we? And we can uh, do more than we're already doing. The Taoiseach said yesterday he wants more sanctions against Russia. Yeah, so this discussion's taking place all this week in Brussels on another sanctions package, which would be the fifth uh, sanctions package. Now, this, there will be more import bans and more export controls, and also companies voluntarily uh, pulling out of, of Russia as well, put more people onto the list of sanctions, and also to look at how the sanctions have been operating up to now. Uh, sometimes you'll find loopholes or maybe something wasn't drafted quite as expected, uh, tighten them up. So that's, that's the aim of what's happening this week. Um, now, obviously, there's a discussion going on about fuel, about fossil fuel. Um, Ireland has fully supported a ban uh, on fossil fuel from Russia, some countries haven't, um, and I have to say that's very understandable. We don't get much of our supply from Russia, uh, and it is very difficult. This is a very difficult situation with democratically elected governments because, on the one hand, we have to punish Russia uh, for what they're doing. And on the other hand, then, the result of that will be prices will continue to go up here. Like, let's be absolutely mm-hmm. honest about that. Um, and maybe other measures would have to be taken. And it's very difficult to defend that, and it's very difficult to counteract that, actually, mm. because there's, there's very, there are limited tools then at your disposal unless you can get you know, rapid sort of alternative supplies. And work is ongoing to try to do that. Um, but but it, but it is obviously it would obviously be a huge market shock uh, to have these particular sanctions on Russia. Well, we do support them because it is the morally right thing to do. Yeah, well, it really is a very difficult situation when you hear... Uh, women who've survived in places like Boucher saying uh, that they were raped in front of uh, their children and witnessed men being shot in the back of the head with their hands tied uh, behind their backs and uh, other women uh, raped, girls raped uh, and then killed and burnt uh, to try and hide the body. It's very hard to justify funding this war. We were talking to women who were raped in front of their children. We were talking to people whose children died because they... They got pneumonia and they were at the basement for 39 days straight without any ray of light. We were talking to people who who were telling us horrendous, horrible things that happened. Like, you know what was the worst thing that I witnessed today? It was the destroyed building. Building where people, a home where people burned alive. But the fence was still standing. And there was a message in the paper file on the fence. It was written, we are peaceful people. They were indeed peaceful people, but it didn't help them out. Did not. They all died. And and this is something that is 
It is a red line. And if right now there is any world leader who would say there are two sides of this story, then he or she needs to reconsider. If there is somebody who would say, okay, we'll continue buying Russian gas and oil, then I can tell you they are paying for exactly these things to happen in my country, for my people, to my people. And if there are world leaders or world organizations who are still thinking that there is still time to decide to give us or not to give us the weapon, to support us or not to support us, I can tell you there is no time. Because right now, while we are talking, there is more of these crimes happening on the other side of Ukraine, on the, on the eastern part, in, in cities of, like Mariupol that has been occupied for, for 40 days and destroyed, same way as Bucha. That's Ukrainian MP Kira Rodik. Minister, is the West funding this war? Well, see, that's, that's the reality. I mean, look, Russia's a huge country, but actually its economy is really pathetic. Um, it's, it's about the size of the Netherlands, maybe less their economy. And all they really have is the export of fuel. Uh, fossil fuels, gas and oil. That, that's really what keeps the Russian economy going and it's certainly what keeps uh, this war going. So, as Mr. Kovny said, I mean, the sanctions up to now obviously haven't produced a change in course. They are having, they are definitely having an economic impact. There's no question in Russia, also not. Um, but it is really natural gas, oil uh, that would make a major difference. So we've been saying for some time we have to move to renewables. That's obviously not going to happen fast enough. Um, but we do... We, 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 when we, when the European Union or companies of the European Union purchase Russian gas and oil, mm. undoubtedly that is what's funding the war and has funded it up to now and is, and is able to stabilise the ruble, for example. Mm. Um, but but so that, that's why countries, Lithuania, you see, has blocked off all natural gas. Other countries at the front line who depend on uh, gas and oil from Russia are also uh, pulling out. We've said we will support that. But quite frankly, it is. I can see why some countries are balking at that. It is very, very. It would be very, very difficult for them to do that, and they fear that they punish themselves uh, worse than the Russians. But we certainly would support it. if there's a proposal for sanctions. Mm. It won't be us that's stopping it. Uh, we would certainly support it. What will it mean for us? I mean, Germany, uh, for example, says it has reserves of about 25% of what it would like to have. Uh, so uh, if it bans the importation of Russian gas, uh, it's going to be in trouble. Our, our supplies come from Corp and they come from uh, the UK. Uh, but the ESRI has been saying that if uh, there's a shortage of gas across Europe, there's a, an agreement between European countries that we share the gas that we have. So would we be in a, a situation where the gas supply that we have secure here in this country would have to be shared with Germany and others? Well, look, that's that's a question for another day, but there's no doubt we're all in the one international market. So the, the same price is paid really the world over uh, for gas. So it wouldn't matter if we had our own uh, particular supply here and it was completely cut off, which it's not because there are pipelines. Um, we still pay the same price. So, mm. but, so even if there weren't rationing, even if there weren't rationing, we, we would be paying a higher price. And but, ras- but, but rationing is possible, is it? Well, it's 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 certainly it's it's certainly something that's mm. certainly it's not uh, it's not it's, it's not it's not it's not impossible. In no, words. It's I mean, I'm not, not, not trying impossible. to predict. And, no, no, it's definitely not impossible. And like I know people have yeah. looked askance at different suggestions that people have made, and Minister Ryan has made on, on reducing fuel consumption. Mm. But I have to say, they are certainly things we're going to have to look at. Mm. Um, well, there may not be the fuel to do these things. Yeah, but yeah. like mm. the, the truth is, I mean, the, the, there are things we can do to reduce our energy consumption and, and to reduce bills, which. Mm. 
nearly all of us don't do, uh, including myself, like on a motorway, you use a lot more um, diesel going over the 100 kilometres an hour mm. up to 120. Now, I, I stay at 120. I'm not going to pretend that I'm some sort of saint on this. Mm. Um, I try not to go over 120. But if you stay at 100, mm. you're using a lot less fuel. Uh, and I think these are things that all of us are going to have to challenge ourselves about um, because the government has little control over price and um, this this thing at the moment seems to be only getting worse. Mm. Well, that's the point, isn't it? And even if there aren't uh, uh, rations or if fuel isn't rationed, uh, the prices will go through the roof. Uh, so if you can get fuel, it's going to be very expensive and that's what we're facing into. That's and, inevitable. And this, is what, this is the, I mean, look, I'll be, mm. I mean, the government wants to do the right thing on this. Yeah. But, you know, if we come back in a month's time or six weeks' time after sanctions came in on, on, on fuel... Um, would anybody say that the euro or two euro increase was because of the war crimes that we witnessed? No, and that's the problem mm. that democratic governments have because these are these are not easy decisions. Yeah. they're not easy, and they're very difficult, and they will have consequences for our citizens. Uh, as well as the Russian economy. Yeah, and uh, I suppose the reality of it is if you reduce fat or abolish fat, you're still going to have very high prices. Uh, what, uh, uh, what can Europe do collectively in terms of combating inflation like that? Well, look, I mean, one thing I'd like to see happening, if it could happen at all, is the joint purchasing of gas. Um, and that's, there's different ideas floating around about that. The European Commission is going to come back now in a few weeks uh, with detailed proposals on how to sort of stabilise the market mm. and how to how to do things. So it's about joint efforts on uh, storing the gas and, and there's different ideas about that, the possible joint purchase of gas uh, as well, possibly changing the way uh, the electricity market is structured. I mean, there's a problem with the electricity market because it is, we don't really get price credit for the renewables that we're using. Mm. In other words, you're paying the price really based on the price of gas. However, the way the system is set up does actually encourage more and more renewables. So it's a very complicated market, but they're looking at ways to see how we can how we can change that structure to bring the price down. And to, like the reality is we, we have a huge amount of renewables, yeah. but it's not really reflected in the electricity bill. So the European Commission is looking at this. They're going to report back now, I think, with the end of April or early May, uh, on all of these issues, they're extremely is, complex. But is, that's is, is, the, is, is the short-term solution to switch uh, to importing uh, American fracked gas? Well, I, I, I have no difficulty with that. I don't like fracking, um, but we, we, we already have. I mean, look, we already have nuclear. We already have gas. We already mm. have fracked gas. That's the reality, um, and we need to keep the lights on. Uh, we need to keep um, you know things going in this country. And I think most people will agree with that. I don't know what the source of the gas particularly will be from North America. But President Biden has committed to supplying a significant amount to Europe, and that's going to come. But it's not just from, from America. It's from, we're going to get it from Central Asia. We're going to get it from North Africa as well. Yeah. And my colleagues around Europe are literally scouring the world looking for gas. Okay, and and this, uh, of course, is uh, the consequence of war uh, and uh, the first-hand experience of Ukrainians is obviously dreadful. They say that we're going to see more of these atrocities as time unfolds uh, and that this is uh, the way that uh, the Russians are behaving in Ukraine, uh, attacking civilians uh, and killing, uh, massacring civilians uh, for that matter, uh, and that what the Ukrainians need, they say they need three things, Minister. Ukrainian armed forces need needs three things. It's weapons, weapons and more weapons. Yeah. Uh, as we see now in Bucha, I mean if we had this defend I mean, you know, weapon to defend, of course 
we needed to unblock a pretty clear message there, Minister, from uh, the Ukrainian MP Maria Ionova. They need three things, weapons, weapons and weapons. Yep, uh, there's no doubt, and I have no doubt that when President Zelensky speaks to the Oireachtas, that he will certainly challenge us uh, on those things. Um, the European, we're not part of NATO, so the NATO, we don't, and secondly, we don't have a huge supply of weapons anyway. Uh, we have provided military equipment. Yes, it's non-lethal equipment. We have provided that through the European Peace Facility. And that was a big step uh, for the for the Irish government and for Ireland to do that. We've never done that before in a war situation. So this particular war has changed so much uh, in a period of weeks. Um, I, I suspect that's where things will remain because at the end of the day, they're still going to need helmets. They're still going to need mm. food for soldiers. And we've provided that. And we've provided it exactly... Uh, on a pro-rata basis, as every other European country has done. So so we've given our full share to this European peace facility, most of which has gone to, to weaponry. But our share will go towards things like helmets and meals, etc., for soldiers. Mm. Um, and that's still really, really important. And that's in line with our military traditions. But that, that in itself uh, was a very big step for Ireland to take and has been, you know, it is appreciated by the Ukrainian government. It's stuff that they badly need. All right. Uh, as you say, President Zelensky will uh, address the Oireachtas tomorrow, uh, a joint sitting of uh, the Oireachtas. There will be uh, many foreign diplomats in uh, attendance. The Russian ambassador won't be there. Are you disappointed by that? No, and I, I'm, I, I didn't, don't really know the basis upon which he was invited. I think possibly everybody was invited uh, from the diplomatic corps. It's standard when a head of state addresses the uh, Oireachtas. So I didn't quite understand that. Um, I don't think he'd get a very good welcome, to say the least. Okay. Minister, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, Michael. That's the Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne. Now, thanks to Mairead, who's in Drogheda. She says, my stomach is sick watching the footage coming from Ukraine to see all of those bodies and mass graves, innocent, ordinary people who did absolutely nothing wrong. But yet, the rest of the EU won't get involved for fear of World War Three. We're all afraid of that, but can we just let Putin keep on killing? I just can't believe what we are witnessing. It is almost surreal, but this is real life for these poor people. Thank you, Mairead in Drogheda. I'm sure Mairead in Drogheda, like all of us, knows Vladimir Zelensky, a household name now. That's uh, the president of Ukraine. It wasn't always uh, the case. He, he was a TV star, as you know, uh, a comedian uh, who made his name, ironically, through... Uh, program uh, which uh, uh, had him lead a political party uh, and uh, that's uh, the party that is the party he leads now in real life. Almost five years ago, uh, four and a half years ago, November of 2017, Vladimir Zelensky was in Drada, Mairead. Uh, I don't know if you know if you knew that then, uh, but I'm sure all of the Ukrainian people did uh, because he performed in the TLT. In Drogheda, uh, and uh, it's a very interesting story that's told in the Irish Times today. Rhoda McGreevy tells us how Nick Levchenko brought Zelensky here to this country. The concert in the TLT in Drogheda was sold out, uh, and uh, the crowd was mainly Ukrainian, as you would expect. But uh, very interesting to read in the Irish Times. 
uh, that there were many Russian people uh, and people from ex-Soviet Union countries and that the concert was performed in Russian, which is Zelensky's first language. Uh, and uh, here's a, a video uh, that uh, is on the Irish Times website, uh, which uh, shows Nick Levchenko talk about how he brought Zelensky to Drogheda. And indeed, uh, there's part of the performance that took place in the TLT in this. I live in Ireland. I'm music promoter. I promote the Eastern European culture since 2005. I met Mr. Zelensky uh, back 2016. I'm invited him to come to England and Ireland. He came to Ireland in November 2017. He had one show and TLT Theatre Dragon. Zelensky at that time was, I mean, was number one as a comedian, as a comic, as a good player, as a good actor. Everybody would know him, just like Jim Carrey. That's the president. That gig was after 2014, after the Russian was invaded the Crimea. So it's all about politics. It's a very patriotic song. He described Ukraine as a woman, as a girl. I mean, it has to be give respect to the girl. Everybody was happy to see him over here, and the, it was like a dream comes through. They came over to Ireland. Some people never seen before in their life, and they want to see the him and, her, and his team. The concert was sold out. How do you feel about Zelensky now? Uh, I feel he's, he's strong, and he's bright, and he's united. Ukraine has united all of Europe, he's united all the world now. You can read that story and watch that video on the Irish Times website. Nick Levchenko, uh, who brought uh, Vladimir Zelensky to Ireland to perform, and you heard him performing in uh, the TLT in Drogheda in 2017. Michael Reed on LMFM. The name Aaron Brady is uh, familiar to all of us at uh, this stage. Unfortunately, Aaron Brady, as uh, you'll remember, uh, was found guilty of uh, the murder of uh, Detective uh, Garda Adrian Donoghue at uh, the Lordship Credit Union. In January of 2013, his trial concluded in August of 2020 uh, and apparently uh, he was working to stop a prosecution and found himself in court yesterday again with another two men. Tom Toot, court reporter, is on at the line and a very good morning to you, Tom, and thanks for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. The charges uh, perverting the course of justice. What is being alleged here? Well, Michael, um, he was arrested yesterday morning by uh, following a, a, a substantial investigation by the Garda National Bureau of Criminal Investigation. Two charges have been brought against Brady uh, with quite a specific detail in each, but they both relate to perverting the course of justice. In relation to his trial back in 2020 for the murder of Detective Garda Adrian Donoghue, he's accused of conspiring with a Dublin man, Dean Byrne, uh, from Cabra Park in the city's north side, uh, to persuade 
to persuade Daniel Cahill uh, not to give evidence during that trial in the Central Criminal Court. The trial itself ran between April uh, and August, uh, but Mr Cahill gave evidence in June um, over a, a number of days, and he he had given evidence that he overheard Brady say that he had shot a Garda. Now, he gave evidence from America via video link. Uh, it's alleged that um, that he conspired with Dean Byrne uh, to persuade him not to give evidence during the trial. There's also another charge for perverting the course of justice, and this is, relates to the video recording um, of an inter- a witness interview uh, with, with another witness in the case. Uh, and that was to embark upon a course to pervert pervert the course of justice as well. Now, a detective sergeant from the National Bureau of Criminal Investigation said that Brady made no reply when charged and hit with no application for bail. He was remanded in custody, uh, even though that's kind of academic, really, because, uh, as is well publicised, he's serving a life sentence for the capital murder uh, of the detective Garda. Uh, now, he will appear again via video link. Uh, the other development in the case was that we were told the Director of Public Prosecutions has directed trial and indictment. So while he appeared at Dublin District Court, uh, we were told that the case will go over to a higher court eventually once a book of evidence has been completed. The actual venue, which higher court, has yet to be fully clarified publicly. Um, but we were told it will go to a higher court. Uh, the other information uh, uh, from the proceedings yesterday, uh, kind of by proxy, uh, mm-hmm. revealed uh, in relation to the co-accused, uh, Dean Byrne, that um, it related to mobile phone communication. Uh, there was alleged mobile phone communications by Byrne uh, with a, a, another anonymous contact in relation to the case, in relation to the evidence of this key witness, and allegations about uh, dis- discussions about attempts to stop this witness from giving evidence. Byrne was in Mountjoy, and a phone was discovered in his cell, right. and it's uh, a National Bureau of Criminal Investigation guard, a detective, Kevin Lawless, who, who told the court about this. Uh, and uh, what was alleged uh, was pretty serious, wasn't it, Tom? These are allegations at this stage, but yes, but what was alleged was pretty serious because it's formed the basis for a, a, a strenuous objection to bail against Byrne, who did apply for bail. Uh, Detective Garda Lawless uh, outlined kind of a summary of the, the prosecution case, the, a number of communications on an alleged contraband phone in Byrne's cell uh, that was used with an anonymous to, to engage in kind of contact uh, messages and audio messages um, through WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger with a contact on the outside. And all of this was discussed aspects of the case, uh, statements made by the witness, uh, the book of evidence in the case, and the testimony of that witness, and mentioned uh, efforts to stop the witness from giving evidence or um, how that could be, how, uh, uh, discussions in that regard. Okay, there is a a third man in this, Len Holland, uh, who's uh, going to be uh, charged uh, through the district court, is it? district court level. Uh, he's charged uh, of the three, he, he, he is charged with a separate offence complete for unlawful possession of mobile phone in prison. Um, and he 
he um, his case will stay in the district court, uh, unlike the two co-defendants uh, who have different category charges. However, they were all treated as co-defendants. The cases were interlinked, um, and the, 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 the court was told initially that a number of people uh, were under investigation in relation to this, and then it resulted in the three people being charged yesterday. Okay, well, I'm sure there'll be great interest in how this uh, case or these cases develop over the course yeah. of the coming uh, weeks. Uh, uh, Michael, I should also say it did emerge that in the, in the in the bail hearing yesterday in relation to Dean Byrne, uh, that the charge that both he faces along with Brady, it can on conviction result in an indefinite sentence and an indefinite fine. Right, okay. Very, very interesting. Tom, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Tom Toot, court reporter. Michael Reed on LMFM. It's been a long couple of years, I think it's true to say, since uh, the last uh, mandate conference. Uh, the mandate trade union is holding its biannual delegate conference in Castle Bar this week. Essential work, fair play, decent wages. The banner uh, that uh, this is coming under. And we're joined now by Jerry Light, uh, the General Secretary of Mandate, which represents about 30,000 members, most of whom are working in retail and very good morning to you, Jerry, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us. It's been very difficult over the last couple of years for people working in retail because of COVID. We're facing into very dark times and inflation is through the roof. Uh, and uh, you've kicked off your conference by looking at pay levels uh, and you're calling for the introduction of the living wage to be the minimum wage, a minimum wage of twelve ninety an hour. That's right, Michael. Good morning and thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, that's one of the, the main calls that came out of the conference yesterday. I think, as you say, it's been an extremely difficult two years for everybody. Uh, everybody, but uh, I, I think, uh, you know, retail workers, and particularly those who worked in uh, the grocery outlets, they were there from day one. They kept us fed. Uh, they went in from day one, as we say, not knowing the uncertainties they were facing into. And they got many, uh, rightfully, they got many sort of applauds uh, and uh, recognition, mm. and indeed categorised by government ministers, and indeed, I think the tarnished as well, categorised them as essential workers. Mm. What we're saying now is, this gives us an opportunity to open up a focus on retail work and and the work that our members do. They also got Uh, sick in a lot of cases, and they also got a dog's abuse in a lot of cases, didn't they? Listen, listen, I I could spend the rest of your show this morning (laughs) filling out the details. It was horrendous stuff. Yeah. And as I said in my speech yesterday, uh, some of the unfortunately uh, uh, statistical evidence last year shows that retail workers were amongst the biggest cohorts who contracted the disease. And mm-hmm. one has to naturally conclude to that some of them unfortunately died mm-hmm. and they paid the ultimate price in the performance of their duties. And again, as I remembered, I reminded the delegates yesterday, in some cases that was out of economic necessity to go to work. So now is the time, as I say, to, to, to put a new focus on retail work and what we're saying, if all of those plaudits and recognition meant anything, mm. we're saying that as an entry point, as an entry point for retail workers now, we're saying it should be the, the living wage. Now, we know the Low Pay Commission is currently tasked by the Tarnished to see whether or not the current minimum wage can be translated into the living wage. And what we're saying is that should happen as a matter of urgency. Okay, but then what happens? Uh, and uh, I'm sure you're right uh, because of uh, the way inflation uh, is soaring at the moment uh, that you'd need a minimum of 12.90 to live off. Uh, but that's uh, going to result in a, a different living wage, isn't it? Because things are just going to get more expensive. Well, that's the argument that some economists put out there that when they say uh, pay increases actually fuels and it sort of deepens the inflationary cycle. 
But let's remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about low-paid workers. We're talking about workers. A lot of them can't even command a full week's uh, work. They're only working part-time because it's not accessible to them. Mm. So I think that we're looking at things in the round. I think we need to be realistic. Some will always argue against pay increases. It's never a good time to have a pay increase. Mm. But I think we can see right across society now, Mm. from public to private sector, a demand as the cost of living increases. And of course, inflation and the cost of living impacts even greater than those who are on lower pay. Well, there's to be a public sector pay deal. That's been renegotiated next month, it seems. And instead of a 1% increase, you'd expect that it's going to be greater than that. I think the unions are going to go in looking for 15%. If they get increases on that scale, uh, will 1290 be enough to go from 1050 to 1250 or 1290? The difficulty of this sort of uh, this discussion is we need to sort of be sure we're comparing apples with apples, this mm. public sector, this private sector. And I've already alluded to some of the greatest challenges that we constantly have to deal with in the private sector, and particularly in retail, low hourly rates of pay and no weekly hours. And that announced the low earnings. Yeah. So from our perspective, and I'm only obviously responsible from our perspective and our union and our members, mm. we certainly make no apologies going in and making that demand yesterday. But also say, Michael, I mm. think it's important. That's just an entry point. What mm. we're also saying is those who are in uh, employment for a number of years and who will be on a higher rate of pay, we're also calling for commensurate pay increases for them. Because one of the crucial things is, particularly in the grocery sector, Businesses didn't do too bad out of COVID. In mm. fact, they done very well. Uh, sales and profits increased. Now it's time for payback, and that's one of the main elements. That, in fact, it's in the team of our comfort yeah. essential work, decent pay. And I, I suppose it has to follow. If uh, you're on ten fifty now and you go to twelve ninety, whoever's on twelve ninety is going to want to go to fourteen or fifteen, and they may very well need it. And Again, the same question, put it a different way. Will it be enough? I mean, if your electricity bill goes up by 20% and your gas bill goes up by 40%, or God knows, uh, because those bills uh, could get even higher in time to come, uh, will these increases be enough? It, it's quite frightening at the moment. Yeah. That's a very fair question. Now, when does this, when, if we constantly chase the increase inflation that's happened, where does, where does it end? And ultimately, as I say, we go back to the, to the conversation we're having earlier about fueling the cycle. But again, I, I just bring the listeners back and from the focus and from our perspective, it's low-paid workers and it's people who are on low hourly uh, numbers of hours per week and it's about earnings, it's about actually mm. weekly earnings. So, you know, it, 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 it's impossible to say that and hopefully we'll see some stabilisation again. Yeah. Two economists will, will sort of give you a different perspective and different outlooks and it's rapidly changing and unfortunately it appears to be going in one direction only at the moment, that's upward. But from our members' perspective, not only in respect of the absolute financial need that we have, but I think this is, this is more born out of uh, us now, us now saying to the government and others, to the current government saying, listen, these are the people that you badge as essential workers. Mm. We performed a, a, a role way, belong the, way beyond the contractual obligation. It went well into the realm of civic duty. Now it's time to pay back. And of course, what we're saying mm. to employers as well. Now, yeah. Well, you want to you, you 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 want to talk directly to employers. You want to be able to nego- you want to be able to negotiate on behalf of your members, uh, yeah. which you're not able to do now in some circumstances. Yeah, there, there, there's there's two elements to this. Yeah. I mean, mm. there's the statutory living wage, and that's what we're saying. That should be the minimum wage. Should be that living wage now. Mm. But the other element to this as well is what trade unions, I believe, do best, and it's something that probably there's a need for it now, greater than ever is directly negotiating with the employers. Mm. And, of course, that was one of the other calls, Michael, we had at our conference. Uh, Ireland is one of the few European countries that doesn't have a right, a statutory right for workers to collectively bargain. 
in our constitution it says you have the right to be a member of a trade union, yeah. but it's meaningless. It's meaningless because workers can't vindicate that right because employers will simply turn around in a lot of cases and some of them very big and profitable employers and say, I'm not in any way sort of interfering with your right to be mm-hmm. a member, but I have no obligation. There's no reciprocal right on me to recognise your trade union. Mm-hmm. So that's another call we had at our conference that we need to get in line with, the, with the, most of the European countries, most of the, uh, the European partner countries, uh, that we need to have a, the introduction of uh, legislation to allow for statutory bar- uh, collective bargaining. OK. All right. Uh, just before you leave us, and uh, just very briefly, I'm not sure that uh, face masks are going to be mandatory uh, again. You want that. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, but perhaps people can make that decision themselves. Uh, and uh, on behalf of your members, uh, you'd like them to do that, I think, Jerry. We made that call indeed, Michael. Yeah, there was a number of calls yesterday. And I think you're right, reading the tea leaves on this one, I don't think the government is going to uh, move back into the area of uh, more uh, restrictive practices or uh, mandatory requirement to wear face masks. But I've been constantly saying for the last number of weeks now, Michael, is if that doesn't happen, but then we're speaking directly to shoppers here. And what we're asking them to do is mask up. And the greatest indication and the greatest sign that you should take if you walk into a shop and the workers have masks on, you put your mask on. Remember, you're only there for 10, 15 minutes maximum. That's their workplace. They're there for maybe eight hours. So respect them and give them the true recognition and reward that they deserve for the effort that they put in over the last two years. Okay, Jerry, we leave there. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Jerry Light, General Secretary of the Mandate Trade Union. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the Vincentian Partnership uh, for Social Justice has uh, published a report on behalf of Family Carers Ireland called Care at Home, Costs of Care Arising from Disability. Let's uh, speak uh, to Catherine Cox, who is Head of Communications and Policy with Family Carers Ireland. Good morning to you, Catherine, and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, it seems as though there's a world of difference between having somebody with a disability in your home and not, and certainly so if uh, that's a profound disability. Tell us a little bit more about this report. Yep, so as you said, the report has been uh, launched this morning um, and what it did is it compared two households. So one is a two-parent family with a young adolescent with profound disability and the other is the same composition. It's a two-parent family but with an adolescent without a disability. And what it found is that the family with the caring um, uh, needs it costs €244 more per week um, for that family to run their household. So in total, it costs €752 per week for that family. A week. Um, Mm, Indeed, yes. Um, And I suppose if you look at it, what are the kind of costs? So here they're looking at transport, caring costs. So, for example, accessing therapies, respite, but also everyday household costs, food bills, health, clothing, housing adaptations. So... um, uh, the MESA report looks at a number of different costs within a family and they have been doing these reports for many, many years. Um, and as I said, this one shows that the cost of caring is significantly higher. Mm. And I think it also highlights, which is really important, the reason for that is partly because the services and supports that should be available publicly to family carers are not. And in particular, I'm talking there about things like vital therapies, like physiotherapy, speech mm. and language, occupational therapy. So it means 
caring families have to go out and pay for these privately because they're on waiting lists for a year, two years, or even more in some cases. Okay, so but there, 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 are, to light. there are some supports in place, uh, whether mm-hmm. that's therapies or respite or whatever. This figure of €244 Euro a, a week, uh, does that come after the supports? It, it does. So, so I suppose every family, you know, caring family has different needs, but also would have different means as well. So the family they've looked at is a family with a young adult with a profound disability, which means that family would, for example, be able to access um, carers allowance payment. But because carers allowance, allowance is means tested, only one in four families in this country would get that payment. Mm. Um, there are also other um, support payments there from social welfare, but what the report Court is saying, even taking those into account, there are many families that do not have an adequate um, standard of living or quality of life where there is a caring role within the family. Mm. Yeah, well, you're really being squeezed at that. That's a, a, an awful lot of money. Um, is it unusual uh, in terms of uh, the supports that are available elsewhere? Uh, does it have to be this way? doesn't um, and I think we've been talking about this for many many years we have what we call a postcode lottery of supports and services in this country they are inconsistent, inequitable so in some parts of the country there are supports and families can for example access respite and then in another county maybe down the road that is not the case so we do need to see standardised and also a legal and statutory right to home care in this country Mm. at the moment it's discretionary which means it differs wherever you go so it needs to be be put on legal legislative footing which we have called for for many years um, it is coming down the track but it's probably another year away but in the meantime they can tackle things like for example one of the additional costs is transport we had a mobility allowance that was in this country it was a payment for carers and in 2012 that's, that um, scheme was closed down now we were promised a new transport scheme yet 10 years on, we still haven't seen that. So that could be done and that should be done. But also, and I think it's really crucial, families paying privately for things like therapies. If, for example, they were to look at the National Treatment Fund and find a way to eliminate the waiting list for those vital supports, because denying children um, those supports at an early age is denying them the right to develop to their full potential. Mm. Um, So it really goes against, it discriminates against children with disabilities and older people and adults as well. So we really do need to see our our government, our our country step up, support family carers, put the supports in place so that they don't have to fight and beg for everything and that they're not, you know, faced with real risk of going on the poverty line. And is that what it comes down to, fighting, begging or doing without... uh, I mean, if you have to come up with €244 a week more than somebody... Uh, who doesn't have a disability in the household, uh, is that the situation that people find themselves in? It is, and many family carers, we did some research ourselves last year, caring through COVID. They have talked about how they've gone into debt um, due to their caring role. and um, They cannot put aside savings for the future. They're constantly worrying about financial pressures. And, you know, the rising costs and heating over the last number of weeks is putting more and more pressure on families that are already some at breaking point. So, you know, it's about the financial worries, but it is also about the impact of caring on a family carer's mental health and well-being as well. And, you know, research shows us that families caring 
there can be difficulties with relationships, with marriages, because of the pressure that is put on. And those pressures are put on because the services and supports that should be available are not available to families. And I think that's really important. You know, carers save the state, family carers save the state 20 billion euro every year, caring for loved ones in their own homes. But they can't do it on their own and they shouldn't have to do it on their own. They do need supports. They do need services in their local area. And while some things have improved over the years, there are still many, many carers who unfortunately are struggling and are doing it on their own, both struggling financially, but also struggling emotionally. And I would say to carers out there, you know, Family Cares Ireland, we're here to help. We're here to advocate. We're here to listen. Go to our website, familycares.ie, see what supports are there or call our free phone care line 1-800-2407-24. We are here to help, but we need our government now to step up and support us to support family carers. Well, it seems just dreadfully unfair there, but for mm-hmm. the grace of God, so I'm not in that situation. I'm sure there's many people who will feel that way, and uh, the people then who mm-hmm. you're representing this morning, Catherine, uh, in this bind. Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment. Your report will be launched today, and I'm sure it'll get a, a lot of attention. And thank you indeed uh, for joining thank us, you. as always. Catherine Cox is Head of Communications and Policy with Family Carers Ireland. Cahill in Mornington, uh, thanks uh, for your text. He says, I can't understand why Moscow hasn't been flattened when confronted by a snake. You cut off its head. It's high time Moscow got a, a taste of its own medicine. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Jim and Navin, thanks as well for your message. He says the government should expel all staff from the Russian embassy and immediately so they've no valid reason to be in this country Uh, security investigation should also be carried out to check what they've been doing up to now the ambassador showed early on that he sided with the murderer who is Putin and his cowardly army thank you indeed to Jim and Navin thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us so far today that's if you have been in touch with us and if you've not been we'd love to hear from you now to some funding uh, that is being made uh, for cross-border initiatives Uh, we're joined by Fianna Fáil Senator Aaron McGreehan to hear a little bit about this €5 million Euro shared island local authority development uh, fund. Good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, a big focus on tourism initiatives in this funding. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, this scheme is going to support cross-border cooperation between our local authorities and deliver on that shared island investment that you know we've spoke about before, uh, those cross-border projects that are so important to this region. And as you said, yes, the tourism um, is a, a really big focus of the of the of the fund or potential of the fund. There's also the collaborative education and trainings um, can be can be brought into that enterprise development, including cross border clusters, networks, innovations, hubs, and you know, agri food, foreign direct investment. There's also um, an opening for a conservation of biodiversity and. Um, and including, you know, border region peatland protection, um, and also there's um, for for there are natural or unbuilt in heritage, cultural curation projects which recognise and celebrate the diverse community and cultural traditions of both sides of the border. So there is so much potential there, and mm-hmm. there's two parts of the funding, Michael, and it would be the, the feasibility stages, and then we have the the pre-planning stages, and that, from the feasibility stage, obviously projects will have, you know, the local authorities cooperating with a local authority north of the border will we'll pick projects and get funding to get that feasibility project 
um, looked at to see, you know, the potential and the practicality of it. And then if it's successful and it makes sense, they can then apply potentially mm. to a, a, a government department or indeed back to the shared island unit for funding. And then the second part is developing funding up to a maximum of 250000 per project. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would have to have a clear north-south basis and a proper um, north-south basis dimension to, to any project that, that, that is brought forward. So Louth County Council could uh, apply for this, uh, but uh, Newry and Moore would also have to benefit. Absolutely. So it has right. to benefit, benefit the, the entire region. And it's a really, mm. you know, really important project because... Um, for me, when I was on Loud County Council, we do cooperate and, and would, would meet with our, our colleagues in Uri and Morning District. And, and, and funding has been a problem because there was no designated funding to, to enhance that, that cooperation. It was often on an ad hoc and um, you know, ad hoc basis. But mm. now there is a funding there to make, make strong, proper investment into the, into the region. You know, that, and we all well know, Michael, this, this entire area right along the border has been disadvantaged because of the partition um, and because of their okay. location. And this is... It's Pe- a really people will, support. I'm sure, understandably ask, uh, is it prudent uh, to provide funding to local authorities in a different jurisdiction? It's, uh, the Loud County Council and, and Cavan County Council and all across the border will be, um, will be the lead, the lead, proje- lead on each, each of the projects. I do think it's absolutely imperative that we mm. work on an all Ireland basis to to raise the the economic and the like the, the the social lives of every single person on this island will benefit both sides of the border. And I think it's, there will be, of course, a huge you know um, emphasis on making sure that there is a proper assessment process. There is there is you know all those box ticks that need to be put through to make sure that the money, money will be spent properly. Okay. But they're Irish citizens in the north, Michael, and, they, and we, I think, in this island have a, have a, a real, you know, obligation to look after everything, to look towards enhancing our entire island. And we know if we, have a, we look after the entire island and on all Ireland basis, it improves the, the, the potential for all of us. All right. We know... Sorry, <laughs> Sorry uh, to cut across you, uh, but uh, I think we have that. Um, the, we'll be hearing more, I'm sure, uh, undoubtedly, uh, Senator McGree in, in uh, the coming weeks. Uh, the closing date for this is the 13th of May, and uh, I'm sure uh, that the staff in uh, the local county council... I have loads of projects in mind. <laughs> <laughs> OK. All right. Well, I'm sure, as I say, we'll be hearing more in the coming weeks. Thank you indeed for joining Where us this morning, I? Fianna Fáil Senator Erin McGree. Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, time is now it's now or never that's if we want uh, to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees if we don't the result will be catastrophic according to the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, the latest IPCC report says that without immediate and deep carbon emissions reductions across all sectors limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees is beyond reach. The jury has reached the verdict and it is damning. This report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is a litany of broken climate promises. It is a file of shame, cataloguing the empty pledges that put us firmly on track towards an unlivable world. We are on a fast track 
to climate disaster. Major cities underwater, unprecedented heat waves, terrifying storms, widespread water shortages, the extinction of a million species of plants and animals. And this is not fiction or exaggeration. It is what science tells us will result from our current energy policies. Some government and business leaders are saying one thing, but doing another. Simply put, they are lying. And the results will be catastrophic. This is a climate emergency. Climate scientists warn that we are already perilously close to tipping points that could lead to cascading and irreversible climate impacts. But high-emitting governments and corporations are not just turning a blind eye. They are adding fuel to the flames. They are choking our planet based on their vested interests and historic investments in fossil fuels when cheaper, renewable solutions provide green jobs, energy security and greater price stability. That's the United Nations uh, General Secretary Antonio Guterres. Now, in a response uh, to the IPCC report yesterday, Minister Eamon Ryan said that the Irish government is acting and is acting now and that through the Climate Action Plan we're empowering every citizen, every business and every community to make the just transition to clean, safe, healthy and sustainable future. Let's uh, speak to Pauline O'Reilly who's a Green Party Senator and chair of the party, a member too of the Oireachtas Environment and Climate Committee. And a very good morning to you, uh, Senator O'Reilly, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Can you stand over that statement uh, from your party leader? Do you think that the government is acting now or doing enough now, as the case may be? I think that what we've clearly seen is that we put in place the legislation and we spent, you know, a significant amount of time getting cross-party support for the climate bill, which many people will have heard about, and that means cutting our emissions by 50% by 2030 and 100% then uh, becoming uh, carbon neutral by 2050. And we have a climate action plan and we have funding in place for communities to get involved. Um, But it's clear that with all of those things that are in place, action also needs to be taken. And that means every local authority taking action. It means prioritising Things that will actually make people's lives better, um, such as cycling and walking in our towns and cities. Um, it also means retrofitting on a massive scale. And, and as many people will know, um, the National Retrofit Programme is there to, to aim to do just that. Um, so the funding the funding is there for some of those things. But at the same time now, we are seeing the, the war um and I suppose the the illegal war in Ukraine, the impact that Russia is having on energy security around the planet. And, you know, we're responding to that by also then um, supporting those in fuel poverty. It's not easy, but I think that, you know, we can see that two billion has been put in um, to support cost of living, to support um, the energy transition since the budget. Mm. Um, but there's no doubt but that this calls on all of us to take action, um, and including the government. For, um, for, for, they, 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 you know, the warnings are sure. stark. We are on track for 3.2 degrees by um, to, by the year um, 2100. Mm. Uh, 
uh, and and that that has to be stark for all of us. And, and this is the this is the third report. Mm. The last ones are what's happening, how bad is, it, bad is it, and this is what do we do to fix it. Funding doesn't um, always transfer into action, does it? Uh, and uh, that may be uh, an issue of frustration for you and members of government with this €8 billion euro package uh, that was uh, announced in uh, the budget. Uh, we were speaking with uh, Stop Climate Chaos on the programme yesterday in advance of the publication of the IPCC report, uh, and we took a, a look at at the website of Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, the SEAI, uh, because they're to provide a, a number of one-stop shops so that people can have these deep retrofits that we've been talking about for so long, uh, which would see you put 25,000 into heat pumps and all of the other things that would make uh, your home environmentally friendly and the government would match that funding. Uh, they had said that they'd have those one-stop shops in place by March, then it was the middle of March and then it was the end of March. We're now in the 5th of April and they're still saying on their website, by the way, the end of March. Uh, and I know that your committee is to meet with uh, SEAI today and ask them what's going on because they've only got two companies so far to do this work. That's right, we're meeting with them at 11, uh, 11 a.m. And, and we'll, we'll obviously all be asking questions. Um, as you say, we have put huge huge money and huge investment. Um, I think, you know, we are seeing the results. Um, so the one-stop shop is one element, but also we have the 80% grants. And I know a lot of people have taken those up on things like attic and wall insulation. Um, and also then uh, increased funding into the warmer home scheme. So actually 58% of the of the money that was put into retrofitting is actually for those who can least afford it. So all of that is moving ahead um, we absolutely need to, to see the SEAI moving ahead with the one-stop shops. And as you say, there are two companies there, but there needs to be an awful lot more. But I think that, you know, some things that would give us some hope um, mm. from the IPCC report is that, I mean, this is this is the, the decade that we have seen, or certainly the, the 2010s up to uh, 2019, we've seen, um, we've seen the greatest emissions ever. But the rate of emission growth has actually declined somewhat um, and that is because of some of the steps taken mm. um, and we know that solar energy is down by 85% cost wise wind energy is down 55% But if you can't get somebody then, to do the work sorry to cut across you Senator uh, I, I mean two one stop shops uh, which aren't even well, publicised yeah. pu- publicised on the website yet I, I mean if this was uh, to be effective you'd need what? A, a minimum of 100 Certainly, twenty six. Look, look, look uh, I mean, uh, absolutely, but yeah. um, but it is important to remember that the one stop shops aren't, you know, they're there to support uh, the whole process. But it doesn't mean that there aren't people out there who are doing retrofitting work. Oh, I know that, and but it does are, add to yeah, the arguments. Just so that people know, but, but absolutely. Mm. It needs and to it adds to the arguments, agree. doesn't it, about, you know, all well and good trying to save the planet, but if we haven't got the wherewithal to do it, we're not able to do it. We just end up paying more tax. Like if you can't afford an electric car, uh, you pay more tax in diesel or petrol or whatever the case may be. If you can't retrofit your home, you can't retrofit your home, so you're going to pay more for oil or gas or however you're currently heating your home. And I don't know if you've seen the report in the Irish Independent today but it's telling us that Fine Gael TDs are, are going to be asked to vote on delaying the increase in carbon taxes on the 1st of May until the Ukrainian war ends. What do you make of that? Look, I think I think they, you know, 
they, they've got their head in the, sta- in the sand, some of the members of Fine Gael at the moment. I mean, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth, but I think that really some of the issues are around other political parties who are trying to make hay out of it. Let's be honest about it, carbon tax. Um, it's €1.40 a month on, on, the, on gas and to heat people's homes. That's how much it, it would be in May. It's, it's not going to make the difference. And it's unfair on people to pretend that it is. It does give false hope. And, and you know, it is a, a cheap political shot, really. Like, the reality is that it actually makes things worse for people because what carbon tax funds is fuel allowance. It, incre- it is funded the €5 euro extra on fuel allowance. It's also funding the, the €200 euro credit on people's electricity bills at the one-off payment of 125. Um, and also, you know, it's paying for increases in living alone allowance, in qualified child payment. So the entire amount of that increase is actually there to support people who most need it. And that's what we need to do, because as you quite rightly say, you know, we need to do both. We need to support people and we need to make that rapid transition. And I think when it comes to things such as the energy transition in wind, in energy, in batteries, the decreases in cost are huge now. And it's to, it's to try to, to capitalise on that. And so there is hope there. I think as a government and as a country, we have that ambition. Let's stick with it, but also support people. And some of that support has to come from carbon taxes. And um, $2 billion, as I say, mm. has been paid already to support people since uh, since the budget in October. Um, but you, let's remember that uh, we can't cut taxes forever and cut taxes on everything because ultimately those uh, par- political parties um, who are saying that we, we, we shouldn't be uh, taxing or we should be con- continuously reducing taxes, they're going to have to explain what services are they going to um, are they going to take that money from? Because that's what taxes are. They do fund essential services. So we have to balance everything and be responsible, take the steps that are necessary, make people's lives better ultimately, and uh, and ensure that we have energy security in our own country so that we're not reliant on Russia and other um, other states that are actually going to bleed us dry unless we take the steps necessary. Right. Um, you sound... I'm not sure what uh, way to describe it, uh, but disappointed, let's say, with uh, Fine Gael. Uh, is it that you think they're trying to disassociate uh, from uh, the government's um, a- approach on retrofitting and carbon taxes and so on uh, for political advantage? Well, look, I mean, I, I suppose they're probably, they're probably uh, some of the backbenchers in particular. I, I certainly don't get that feeling from the from Cabinet. I think everybody's of the one mind when it comes to um, those members in government. But there are certainly backbenchers who are probably getting nervous. And, uh, and they're, you know, they're looking as well at mm. other political parties talking about cutting, cutting tax and they're responding. But, they're, but you know, it's not mm. just about, it's not just about Fine Gael. The most, most of the people that I know in Fine Gael are behind it, um, but it's just a few of those. Okay. But I think it's other political parties, I, I would say, um, that mm. are, are, are trying to give people that kind of false hope that Fair carbon enough, tax is it, the answer. And, if, and it's, it's if that not. is the case, uh, if that is the case, they're obviously worried that they'll suffer at the polls. Uh, the Green Party did very well in the last general election. Uh, will you pay the price for doing what you believe is the right thing in the next election? 
we are a long way from an election and I don't believe as a party that we look at things in, in a cynical way and in a populist way. But what we do do is try to respond as, as you know, as politicians uh, representing people on the doors. Um, and the things that I hear are probably very similar to the things that a lot of people hear. People are worried about the cost of living and that's why the government has put in that two billion. That's why we have put a 200 euro credit towards people's electricity bills. Um, but it, we're doing it because it's the right thing to do and we're also saying and we need to take climate action and we need to ensure that we have energy security in our country so that we're using that massive um, that, that massive resource that we have in Ireland that most countries don't have and that is huge wind resources. That's the future for Ireland. It's an economically sustainable future. That's what we need to be investing in as a country. That's where the jobs will come from. That's where children's futures are. And and I firmly believe that uh, that, that that is what uh, what will be. Um, what what will be the future yeah. for Ireland? And we'll you know, replace, and the most re- replace one. these fossil fuels that we're so reliant exactly. on at the moment. OK, Senator O'Reilly, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Pauline O'Reilly is a Green Party Senator, Chair of uh, the Green Party and a member of uh, the Oireachtas Environment and Climate Committee. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the biggest movement of uh, people on uh, the continent of Europe got underway just over uh, a month ago as war came uh, to Ukraine on uh, the 24th of February. Since then, close to 20,000 people have uh, come to this country and undoubtedly many more will come in uh, the coming days and weeks. Let's speak uh, to John Lannan once again of Duras. John is the CEO of Duras, which is a support organisation for migrants a national organisation that's based in Limerick. And a very good morning to you, John, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. I, I know you want to commend the response from people generally who have really shown great charity and generosity in accepting and welcoming people from the Ukraine into this country. And uh, indeed, the government response is something I think you want to commend. But you have a, a lot of questions at the same time, I think. Yes, indeed, and, and good morning. Um, I think there's a lot that's commendable about our response to the appalling situation in Ukraine. You know, the, the government made it clear that people could come here. They signed up to the Temporary Protection Directive at the European level without question. And then as people started to arrive, um, communities all over Ireland pulled out the stops and are continuing to do, do whatever is needed. You can just get basic clothes for people when they arrive and then you know, working from there. But increasingly now we're seeing that um, there's often chaos and confusion on the ground. There are a lot of people from Ukraine in hotels now going into community centres. They're living in the communities with Eastern European families or with um, Irish host families. And, you know, there's a build-up of needs there in terms of, first of all, getting their um, temporary residence papers, their PPSs, their medical cards, then looking to get children into school. There are health needs, there are psychological supports needed. So all of this needs to be resourced. We can't rely on community and voluntary groups and the goodwill of people within communities to sustain the response to the thousands of people, the tens of thousands Mm. of people that will be coming here from Ukraine. Okay, so what do we do? Because, uh, I mean, the options don't seem great, do they? 
No, indeed. Uh, there's certainly a huge challenge there when it comes to accommodation. And unfortunately, we see that a lot of the accommodation that people are going into congregated settings is not good quality. Now, we understand that needs must in terms of getting the roof over people's heads when they arrive. But we do need a strategy. We need a plan for where and how that's going to be addressed in terms of ensuring Maybe that um, properties are habitable, but looking to find ways to move people on from those unsuitable congregated settings. We also need to ensure that things are properly coordinated at national level first and then are resourced on the ground, that local authorities have not just a forum which is ensuring that information is being shared, but mm. that they have resources to be able to join the dots. So we know from you know work that we've done with refugee resettlement in the past for people coming from Syria that you know they, they, there's a range of of, of um, things that are needed: resettlement workers, intercultural workers, support workers in place to ensure that the needs of families and the needs of individuals are met. Are local authorities meeting the challenge? Local authorities are scrambling, I guess, first of all, in Mm. in many cases, to um, find accommodation to try to join the dots. Um, When we look back to COVID-19, that last emergency that we we had, which seems so far away now in many respects, but there were community forums put together um, that worked to varying degrees of effectiveness in, in different counties around the country. There, there's a look at doing a similar model now where the, mm. the agencies and the organisations that need to be coming together are doing so in, in a community response type forum under the auspices of local authorities. But mm. that can't be done without resources. You know, that can't be done as an additional task to all of the work that local authorities do already. So again, the resources need to be made available. Okay, maybe maybe, maybe that excuses um, what has or hasn't been happening. Uh, and just uh, by way of example, Lorcan Sir was on the Week in Politics uh, on Sunday gone by and said that each local authority area has around five 6,000 empty properties. Uh, which you would imagine could be used if uh, there was uh, the focus on bringing them into use. Uh, I think the Department of Housing uh, wrote to each local authority in the country about a a month ago asking what they could do to identify properties that might be used to accommodate refugees coming here from the Ukraine. Uh, And since then, Louth County Council, for example, has managed to facilitate uh, uh, 16 people Uh, to provide accommodation for 16 people uh, and is talking about asking another 50 people to sleep on the floor of a sports hall. Uh, It seems to be far short of what's needed. Absolutely, and and Loud aren't um, alone in in this. Um, There there has been a scramble all around the country, but the, the the types of responses that are being put in place are very short term. And and the problem is that we have a very poor record in this country with temporary solutions. We just have to look at direct provision that has mm. been in existence for 22 years for international protection applicants and it was brought in in the year 2000 mm. on a six month basis as a temporary solution. So we need to learn from that and we need to start putting um, the, the resources and strategies in place to mm. see how we're going to avail of those um, 
those places, those units that are available right across the country. And and it is true, like, you know, there are, if you look at towns and cities around the country, there are derelict buildings that, mm. that could be restored. You know, there, there there are places that have gone out of use that need investment. Yeah. And that but we, we, also, we, we need a strategy. We need a plan mm. for this. And, and, you know, this should be, we can also look at this in terms of opportunity. We've mm. already mm. had a housing crisis in this country. Yeah. Something fundamental needs to be done to address that need. It's got a whole lot more challenging now with mm. the arrivals of so many Ukrainian people. We've also got people in direct provision who are trying to move out. There are thousands of people who who, who need to be able to move on with their lives. So it is an opportunity mm. now to... I'm not sure if you agree, moment. John, but I think we probably will need to redefine uh, what we mean when we talk about buildings being habitable. I, I mean, surely it would be better for somebody to live in a house that has a low bear rating, if you like, than sleeping on the floor of a sports hall. Absolutely, yes, um, it, it would. And because we, we know that um, ongoing living in crowded congregating settings is quite detrimental. And again, we've seen this from direct provision. We've seen the impact mm-hmm. on, on children who have lived for years in centres where they didn't have place to do their homework, they didn't have place to play, they didn't have place to, to develop as children normally would. So mm-hmm. leaving people in halls with beds kind of, you know, a, a yeah. metre or so apart is is really not something we should be doing on a long-term basis. Or women, w- women and children sleeping in tents in a, a, an army base. Uh, I mean, yeah. uh, God knows, uh, I mean, there's a serious concern there, I think, uh, security concern for the people involved. But you have other concerns as well, apart from accommodation and uh, so forth, uh, because uh, these people are coming from a war zone and as time goes on, the later they leave Ukraine, and uh, as time goes on, there's going to be more people with more problems as a result of what they've experienced and witnessed. Indeed, you know, and we know that the um, from the, from the media that some of what has been happening in Ukraine, particularly in the towns outside of um, Kiev, and also in places like Mariupol, have been horrific. And, and people are arriving from that context where they've witnessed perhaps trauma, they've been displaced, they've had to leave with nothing, everything they own is, is back in Ukraine. They may have family members who are, who are still back there. Women may have husbands or partners who are um, on the front line of this appalling war. And, and they need support. People need um to be um, supported in a trauma-informed way. So our services need to be able to respond to the fact that people will need psychological support over time. Children are likely to have seen and experienced things that children should never see or experience and will need you know, assessments and will need the support on an ongoing basis. Indeed. John, thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme this morning. John Lannan is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Duras, uh, which is a migrant support organisation that is based in Limerick. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual around this time, on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, is the number of incidents uh, that uh, Garda are investigating locally, and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Kyle Waters of Enfield Garda Station joins us for the report uh, this week, and there's no end to the number of burglaries we're reporting on this week uh, for that matter. And we're going to begin in Slane, uh, where a house was broken into last Tuesday afternoon. 
Yes, good morning, Michael, and to all your listeners. Gary and Slane are investigating a burglary that occurred in the Cardross area of Slane on Tuesday the 29th of March 2022 between 2pm and 4pm. A residential property was broken into and a gun safe containing four legally held firearms along with an amount of cash and jewellery. Some of the items of jewellery that were taken were the homeowner's wedding and engagement rings which are particularly anxious to get back and return to them. Anyone who may have information or witness anything suspicious in the area at that time are asked to please contact Navin Garda Station on 046-90-36100. And to Nobber next, where a house was broken into over the weekend. Yes, that's right, uh, Michael. Uh, Gary Nobber are investigating a burglary that occurred in the Cruisetown area of Nobber on Saturday the 2nd of April. And this is at approximately 7.30pm. A house was broken into and the rooms were ransacked. Uh, Gary believes that a black... Audi Q7 Jeep partial reg 191D may have been used by the culprits and we're asking if anyone has any information or witnessed anything suspicious in the area at the time to please call Navangarda station on the same number there 046 903610 Okay and uh, to Dremend and Lear where a house was broken into on Tuesday of last week yeah, Gary and Drumlear are looking for public assistance in relation to a burglary that occurred in the Drummond area on Tuesday the 29th of March between the hours of 11.30am and 3pm. A house was broken into and a quantity of cash and jewellery were reported stolen from the property. Unfortunately, similar to the burglary that occurred in Slane, the homeowner's wedding ban was among some of the items and jewellery that were taken and were particularly anxious to get them returned to them. Are interested in speaking with anyone who may be in the area at the time with this anything suspicious to contact Drogheda Garda Station and the number there is 041-9874216. Okay, to Anna Gasson next and uh, some valuable equipment uh, that was stolen in the early hours of Friday morning, sometime between Thursday night and Friday morning at least. Yes, that's right. Uh, Gardy in Castle Bellingham are looking for the public assistance this time. Three lawnmowers were stolen from a shed uh, Gardy believes that a large van or trailer or something similar may have been required to take these items from the property. So we're appealing for information to anyone who may have witnessed anything suspicious that night to contact RD Garda Station on 041-687-1137. Okay, the next burglary is in Enfield. Uh, this involves uh, some masked men who were disturbed, apparently. Yeah, this is on my own patch in Enfield. Uh, so we are appealing for anyone in the Tlagara area of Enfield on Wednesday night the 30th, sorry, Wednesday at 3pm the 30th of March. Entries gained into the house and one bedroom was ransacked before mass suspects fled on foot after disturbed. So Gary believes that they are picked up outside in a black Audi A3 car and we're asking anyone who's been any information or witness anything suspicious in the area to contact Trim Garda Station. That's 046 94 Next uh, to Clonard in County Meath, uh, where some items were stolen uh, on Friday gone by. Uh, a lot of these uh, incidents happened in daylight hours. Uh, this is no different and we're quite often told not to leave valuables in the car. Unfortunately, some valuables were left in a car and they were taken. Yeah, they were taken um, at Ballyboggan Abbey in the Clonard area of County Meath. And this was during the day, as you say, between 1pm and 2.15pm. So two laptops were taken along with the cases and Sony camera and lens in a carrier bag were taken from the vehicle. Now, the carrier bag containing a lens was later discovered, uh, discarded at a river bridge between Prosperous and Robertstown in County Kildare. So we're appealing for anyone who may have witnessed anything suspicious in the area 
or anyone that may have had dash cam footage to please uh, make it available to us at Trim Guard Station 046 94 Right, we're hearing a, a lot about the war obviously, we're hearing a, a lot uh, about uh, the crisis uh, that we're facing in terms of fuel prices, how they could increase even further and home heating oil, very valuable. We're seeing an increase I think in uh, the amount of home heating oil that is being stolen perhaps and perhaps uh, there's a word of warning in that for our listeners but Gardaí in Athboy are investigating uh, uh, the theft of home heating oil. Yeah, this is um, Momentum Trim um, on Tuesday the 29th to Wednesday the 30th of March. So the homeowner just observed the side gate of their house was open and went to investigate it further and she got a smell of oil in the air and she subsequently inspected the oil tank and she observed that the top cover of the tank had been removed and a quantity of oil had been stolen from it. So we're just appealing if anyone has any information or witness anything suspicious in the area to please contact Kells Garden Station 046 Okay, some graffiti uh, that uh, you're looking into that uh, happened in uh, the railway station in Dundalk. Yes, yeah, so the Gardaí and Dundalk are looking for the public's assistance with an investigation into criminal damage that was caused to the carriage of a train that was parked at Clark Railway Station in Dundalk on Saturday night there, the 2nd of April, between the hours of uh, 2.30 a.m. to 3.00 a.m. Uh, so what in the early hours of a Saturday morning, if you like, the carriage of the train was damaged by graffiti, which would cost a substantial amount of money to Irish Rail to get it restored. Um, but Gardaí are interested in speaking with anyone in the area at the time or may have witnessed anything suspicious or may have dash cam footage to make that available to Dundalk Garda Station, and that is 042-9388-416. OK, thank you indeed. Uh, Garda Kyle Waters of Enfield Garda Station will return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now, uh, Jerry, thanks uh, for your text. He says, "Isn't half uh, there isn't half enough wind farms in the country? There might be if people didn't keep objecting to them." Thanks uh, for that, uh, Jerry. Somebody else saying, "Surely we should have been transferring abandoned buildings into necessary accommodation even before the crisis began, given there's so many of them." Tony in County Loud says, uh, "Michael, you've made remarks in the response of Loud County Council, which were fairly condescending, but I'm not sure what you expect from." them and other councils to do when the crisis was feisted upon them overnight at a time when we cannot house our own people. As I've said before, sympathy and good intentions do not build houses or all of the other services uh, that people require. Thank you indeed, uh, Tony, for your message to the programme. Those people were just walking and they shut them without any reason. Bang. In the next neighbourhood, Stokolka, it was even worse. They would shoot without asking any questions. He went to get some wood when all of a sudden the Russians started shooting. They hit him a bit above the hill, crushing the bone, and he fell down. The shooter shouted, don't scream or I will shoot, and they turned away. Then they shot off his left leg completely. Then they shot him all over the chest. And another shot went slightly below the temple. It was a controlled shot to the head. Residents in Boucher finishing our programme today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.